everybody, my name is Saint Pandeluga. You've tuned into the kids and youth version of Nam History Check, the podcast that tells you everything you need to know about Namibian history. We have prepared a mini podcast series for you that narrows in on the life of one of Namibia's greats. Stay with us as we read Sam Nioma, the founding president of Namibia, written by Halvi Itenge and published by Ambeka Children Media. Introduction Long ago, when children in our villages sat around fire and heard their elders tell stories about culture, hunting, and other life lessons, the country of Namibia was called Southwest Africa, and it was ruled by the South African apartheid government. The land was rich with diamonds and other precious natural resources, but the sons and daughters of the soil were not free in their homeland. Family and Early Childhood Years ago, a man named Tate Daniel Yutoni Nioma lived in a kingdom called Oganjera in the north of Namibia. He lived with his wife, Meme Halvi Pingana Kondomboro. They were elders and part of the royal family in the kingdom of Ukwambi. Tate Daniel's father, Kondomboro Kakamburwa, was a respected warrior for Ukwambi. He was a local expert in many types of local roots and traditional medicine, which could cure all kinds of diseases. He was also known to provide natural cures for dangerous snake bites from the feared mamba. In addition to this, his running and warrior skills were legendary. The king of Oganjera gave Tate Daniel the job of looking after his horses. When Tate Daniel took the horses out to graze, he often met sand people and they taught him invaluable hunting skills. Because of his knowledge, Tete Daniel became a brilliant sharpshooter with bows and arrows. And he was always the first one to be called if a lion attacked the village. Tete Daniel's wife, Meme Halvi, was also known as a hard worker who toiled the fields for her family. It didn't matter if it was raining or the sun was blazing. She always had a sparkling smile on her face as she worked. On the 12th of May, 1929, a baby was born to Tate Daniel and Meme Halvi. The child was named Sam Shafishuna Nuyoma. Shafishuna means, there is trouble, there is no peace. This was a prophetic name given what Sam's life struggles would turn out to be. Sam was an obedient child, and as soon as he was old enough, he would help his mother around the house and assist with family chores. Sam sometimes asked his mother, to let him help her pound the mahangu, the mili, which was, and still is, the staple food of the Ovambu people in Namibia. Meme Halvi would hand him the amushi, the pole she used for pounding mili. As she did so, she was often known to say, Sam, don't mess up my mahangu. Sam didn't pound the mili well at first, but he kept trying until he became good at it. He didn't stop there. As he grew older, he started carrying his younger siblings on his back and helped his mother with the cooking and all sorts of other household duties. The other boys in the village were surprised when they saw Sam helping his mother because he was doing work they thought only girls should do. They began to make fun of him. Ha ha, they jeered. You are carrying a child on your back like a girl. This made Sam sad for a while, but he soon cheered himself up. He told himself he was the firstborn, and it was his responsibility to lighten his mother's load. But he didn't like the way they laughed at him, 
So, when he was herding cattle, he usually steered them away from the other boys. As well as helping his mother and herding cattle, Sam also went to school at Okahio Finnish Missionary School. Sometimes, he had to take the cattle to graze a long way from home, and when he did that, his schoolwork would suffer. At such times, he had to borrow notes from his classmates so that he could catch up with his studies. Sam's schoolwork became difficult when the South African government decided that Afrikaans was going to be Namibia's official language. Afrikaans was not easy to learn, but Sam decided to stay in school full-time to continue getting good grades. During the school holidays, Sam's parents would send him to the king of Orangera's home. There, he learned to play Orandeka. That was a boys' game in which half the players had to kick their legs and use their arms to protect themselves against the enemies. The Rite of Passage According to tradition, in order for a boy to be considered a mature man, he had to go through a rite of passage. That meant completing a difficult challenge to prove his strength and stamina. This tradition involved walking to faraway salt pans to fetch salt. Salt was very important and was used to trade for other goods and services, almost the same way money is used now. The journey to the salt pans was a long distance to cover, and if a boy returned safely, it showed he was wise and mature. When Sam turned 13, his father decided that he was old enough to take the challenge. Tate Daniel's old friend Tatitangeni went with him as a guide. The pair started out from Sam's village just after lunch. At first, Sam and Tatitangeni rode together in a donkey cart. However, as soon as they reached a thick forest, Sam had to climb down from the cart and walk. Sam had never been so exhausted in his life. He felt sleepy, and at one point, the cart almost ran him over. Sam and Tatitangeni traveled for almost an entire day before they got any rest. At night, before going to sleep under a tall tree, Tatitangeni told Sam to make a fire in order to keep lions away. The pair rose early the next day and continued their journey. As they traveled for four days and four nights, resting only when absolutely necessary, Sam learned much about himself. He realized that anything he worked hard for and set his mind to he could achieve. At last, they reached the salt pans, and as soon as they arrived, Sam knelt down and began to collect enough salt to last for almost a year. And soon afterward, they began a long walk home, where they finally arrived safely. His parents were very proud of him for successfully completing the journey, and as a reward, his mother cooked him a special chicken dinner, and his father gave him a goat both of which Sam loved very much. Sam was proud and satisfied that he had accomplished his rite of passage. Leaving Home When Sam was 16 years old, he had completed primary school. He left home to go stay with his aunt Julia Gebhard Nanjule, who lived in Varvis Bay on the Namibian coast. During the 1700s, Portuguese, Dutch, and English explorers settled around the whaling port of Walvis Bay. By 1795, Namibia came under the control of the British, and in 1883, the coastal lands were acquired by the German merchant Adolf Luderitz. In 1915, after World War I, 
Namibia was handed over to South Africa. Getting to Walvis Bay was quite difficult because the South African government had imposed a system of racial segregation called apartheid. For this reason, it was often called the apartheid government. Under this system, Namibians were divided into black, white, and colored people. These groups were not treated equally. They had to stay in different areas and were not allowed to socialize with each other or use the same facilities, like toilets, parks, or drinking fountains. Shops had separate entrances for white and black people. It was illegal for a black or a colored person to marry a white person. The kind of services they received, such as education and health, depended on their skin color, with white people always getting the best. In regard to education, black children had to go to inadequate schools with many students in a class and few books while most white children went to smart, well-equipped schools where they received good standards of teaching. The best jobs were reserved for white people. Colored people were allowed to take work with lower pay in offices and schools. Black people had to make their living in the lowest paid jobs, such as gardening and housework. Black people also had to obey unfair rules that only affected them. One of these was that if they wanted to travel around the country, they had to carry an identity card called a pass. Like all other black Namibians, Sam couldn't travel without his pass, which he was required to carry at all times. Fortunately, there was a lady named Meme Aune Katangolo who had the names of many young boys on her pass, so she was able to take them when she traveled. Eventually, Sam went to Walvis Bay with Meme Aune by train and moved in with his aunt Julia. On his way to Walvis Bay, he saw a group of men being transported in a cattle truck. Sam asked Meme Aune, Why are those people being carried in cattle trucks like animals? Meme Aune replied, They are going to work. Sam was shocked. It was the first time he had seen such a thing. Even though he felt sad about it, he just frowned and kept quiet because there was nothing he could do to help the men. In Walvis Bay, Sam started working at a local store. He earned 10 shillings a month, which was worth the same as one Namibian dollar today. Father's Bay was completely different from the place where Sam had grown up. The weather was cooler. There were white sandy beaches along the seashore, and there were sand dunes coming right up to the ocean. Sam was amazed at the beaches, and he would run and kick the white sand with his bare feet. On some days, he would walk with his friends to the beach and would see a lot of sailors and soldiers. He would admire their uniforms and imagine himself wearing one. Sam lived and worked in Walvis Bay for a year. But sadly, one day, his Aunt Julia passed away, and he had to leave. Life in Windup When Sam left Walvis Bay, he went to live with his uncle, Hishkia Kondombolo, in Windup, the capital city of Namibia. He thought Windhoek was a lovely place. He admired the tall buildings, the many different kinds of shops, and all the cars there. However, Sam was upset when he realized that these things only belonged to one group of people. He looked around and saw that everyone with his color was working hard day and night, yet they had a very poor quality of life and were not free to achieve their dreams. Sam had many sleepless nights, feeling a sense of responsibility he could not fulfill. He knew he had to do something to change his life and the lives of his fellow people. In Windhoek, he worked during the day, 
and at night, he went to St. Barnabas School, where he learned English. Sam was very keen to learn because he knew that English would help him communicate with more people. The apartheid government was not happy to see black people learning English, so they tried to find ways to discourage them. They lied to the people, telling them that everyone who learned English went crazy. Sam didn't listen to them because he knew they were not telling the truth. He found ways to continue his lessons until he was able to read and write fluently in English. Not content to just learn his lessons at school, Sam gained knowledge from great heroes of the past, like Chief Josea Kutaka of the Ovajerero, who introduced him to the United Nations, an organization which had been established to keep peace in the world. Here are some of the great Namibian heroes of the past. Hendrik Vidboy, Chief Josea Kutaka, Samuel Maharero, Mandumeyan Demufayo, Jacob Marenga, Ipombo Yashilongo, Nahale Iapingana, Kahimume Nguvauva. After working for a few more years as an office sweeper with the South African Railways, Sam bought a small house in old location. It was here that he married his sweetheart, Theopodain Kovambo Kachimune, in 1956. He knew Kovambo from the days when he lived in Valvas Bay. Over the first few years of their marriage, Kovambo and Sam had three sons, Yutoni Daniel, John Deshipanda, Sakaria Nefungo, and a daughter, Nelago. The Beginning of the Struggle Sam increasingly felt that he had to do something to improve the lives of his people. It was for this reason that he left his job in 1957 to embark on a life in politics. However, Sam faced challenges traveling within Windhoek because, according to the laws of apartheid, black men were not allowed to live in Windhoek without employment. Because of this, he decided to go to Cape Town in South Africa. There, he met Andiba Herman Toivo, a fellow countryman who was also committed to bringing an end to apartheid in his beloved homeland. After sharing ideas, they, along with other Namibians who were living in Cape Town, formed a political group which they named the Ovambulan People's Congress. OPC's aim was to improve the living and working conditions of black Namibians and to remove the apartheid government from Namibia. While in South Africa, Yatoivo sent a letter to the UN headquarters in New York. The person who carried the message was Mburumba Kerina, another Namibian who was studying at Lincoln University in America. He was the first Namibian to speak at the UN General Assembly. His message was to inform the world about the apartheid system in Namibia. While in South Africa, Sam was even more inspired to continue his work, especially when he learned that Ghana, a country which had also been colonized by the British, had gained its independence in 1957. Return to Namibia from Cape Town The Ovambuland People's Organization was formed in 1959, after Sam returned to Namibia. Sam was elected as the party's president. Oppo had to inform people about its existence and how they could get rid of apartheid. First, Oppo leaders gave membership cards to all the people who joined the party. It was still not easy to travel in Namibia, but Sam was not discouraged. He had a special trick. He traveled on a train 
where he would get into first class, which was supposed to be only for white people, and lock himself in his compartment. The police asked every black person on the train to show their pass, but they did not bother with the first class carriages, so they never caught him. One day, as Sam was traveling to Walvers Bay, a police officer appeared just as he was leaving the train. The policeman looked at him suspiciously. Quickly, Sam took out his Bible and his hymn book. Then he pulled his black hat up and pretended to be a pastor. He told the black people nearby to sing hymns, and he preached from the Bible. The police soon left, and then Sam told them about Oppo. He explained that they deserved a better life, and that many African countries that had once been colonized like Namibia had now gained their independence. Namibia too can be independent, he told them. Many of the people became Oppo members on the spot. Sam continued conducting Oppo meetings all over the country, and more and more people became members. The Old Location Uprising Hockland Park, a suburb of Windhoek, was once known as the Old Location, and in this location lived a large population of black people. In 1959, the South African government passed a law ordering every black person to leave the Old Location and move to a new place. The South African government wanted the white people to settle there because it was close to town and so that they could control the roads in and out of the new township. The people were very unhappy because the new place was far out of town and there was less land for them to settle. So, on the 10th of December 1959, they marched to the municipality to ask for this new law to be changed. But the police didn't listen or care. They grabbed their guns and attacked the unarmed people who were protesting. Eleven people were killed, including one woman, Anna Kakurugave Mungunda, who is now celebrated as a Namibian heroine. Despite the people's efforts, the government was too powerful, and in the end, everyone from the old location had to move to the new township, which they defiantly called Katutura, which means the place where people do not want to live, in Ochiherero. Sam and his compatriots became increasingly angry about the way people were being treated. They knew they might have to take up arms to free their people. The Long Journey With more people joining Oppo, Sam decided to leave the country again and look for outside help from free African countries like Ghana. It was on the 29th of February 1960 that Sam left Namibia for exile. A man named Stanley drove Sam from Windhoek and dropped him off at the place near the Botswana border. It was dark. Sam walked and then ran to the border. Wild animals were calling nearby, but that did not stop him on his mission. There were overheaded or living in Botswana. They were descendants of the people who had escaped from the earlier government in Namibia. One ran by Germany between 1904 and 1907. Many Herero people had been killed by this government, and others had left the country to find safety in Botswana. Sam arrived in a town called Omamuno. Chief Jose Akotako, the leader of the Ovaherero, had arranged with some people to meet Sam there and help him. But there was no one around. Sam decided to walk to a nearby village called Omakunda. It was cold and rainy. His ears and his hands were freezing. At last, he saw a hut. He knocked and asked about the people Chief Azagataka had told him about. But the lady in the hut told Sam that they had gone to a wedding and would only be back the next day. 
Come into my hut and wait, she said. Simon replied, I'm fine. I'll wait outside. He was trying to be brave, despite the wet, chilly weather. But when the old lady repeated her invitation, he gave in and went inside. The next day, when the people who were supposed to assist Sam during his stay in Botswana had still not returned, he decided not to wait any longer and continued on his way. The journey was long. He traveled for a whole year by road, sometimes by air, passing through Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Tanzania, Kenya, Sudan, Chad, and Nigeria, until at last he reached Ghana. There, he met with several African leaders, including Kwame Krumah, the founding father of Ghana. He also met with Joseph Kasavumbu, the first president of the Republic of Congo, and Patrice Lumumba, who would soon become the first democratically elected prime minister of the Republic of Congo. Sam told these leaders how the apartheid government was denying indigenous Namibians education, removing them from their homes and sending them to faraway settlements. He also explained how the people had to carry passes whenever they wanted to travel around their own country. While in Ghana, Sam tried to educate as many people as possible about the effects of the apartheid system in Namibia. He also attended important events to advance the freedom of other African countries. One such event was a special conference in 1960 called the Positive Action Conference for Peace and Security in Africa. It was a great experience for Sam and other Namibians in attendance. It was made even better when the representative of President Gamal Adel Nasser of Egypt gave Sam and other Namibian leaders 100 British pounds each. Sam used some of the money to buy an Olevity portable typewriter, which was very handy in the years that followed. While in Ghana, Sam organized a meeting with OPPO members. During their discussion, they came to conclusion that Ovambo People's Organization sounded as if they were only interested in representing one group of people in the country. OPPO wanted to represent everyone, so they decided to call the organization the Southwest African People's Organization, SWAPO. The name change happened on the 19th of April, 1960. The leaders sent a message back to Namibia about the change. They added that they must continue to fight and remain dedicated in order to achieve the country's independence. Another important event that Sam attended was the formation of the Organization of African Unity, which was created to bring African countries together. This happened in Addis Ababa, the capital city of Ethiopia, on the 25th of May, 1963. Petitioning the UN General Assembly Sam was even more determined to liberate his country with the help of his Swapo comrades. They looked for help from many other countries and organizations. From Ghana, Sam went to Liberia, then all the way to New York. While he was in New York, Sam stayed with Burumba Kerina. He also stayed with Pan-African activist Mr. Herbert Whiteman, an African-American. Mr. Whiteman had previously had other African leaders staying at his house, including Kwame Kuruma. Sam learned a lot from Mr. Whiteman. He felt a connection with the struggle of people of African descendant who were brought to America as slaves. In New York, Sam was given the opportunity to speak to the UN Committee about the apartheid system in Namibia. At the General Assembly, Sam and the Swapo leaders demanded that their country, Namibia, should get independence. Some of the members of the UN asked Sam and other Swapo representatives if they were educated enough to rule a country. Sam said, Man was born free, 
and did not need to be educated to demand self-determination and freedom. After staying in New York for about six months, Sam returned to Africa and stayed in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Now that Sam had gained some international knowledge, he was able to open the first SWAPO office where he began campaigning for Namibian freedom with the support of other SWAPO members. When the South African government found out that Sam had been to the UN, they told the International Court of Justice that Sam was free to return to Namibia of no harm would come to him. Sam knew this was a trap, so he prepared a trip home with his comrade, Hifike Puya Pohamba, the second president of the Republic of Namibia, to show the International Court that it was indeed a lie. As soon as they arrived at the airport, Sam and Hifike Punye Pohamba were arrested and thrown into a prison cell. All their belongings were seized. After a day in prison, the pair were released, received their belongings, and told to leave the country at once. Sam and Hifike Punye Pohamba told the International Court of Justice what had happened and that the apartheid government in Namibia could not be trusted. Around this time, Thousands of Namibians started leaving the country because they were tired of their situation. Sam told the UN that Namibians would only return to Namibia once apartheid had come to an end. Swapo gets its first weapons. Although the UN sympathized with Swapo, they were taking a very long time to bring independence to Namibia. Consequently, Swapo decided to take matters into its own hands by taking up weapons. They got their first arms from Algeria, immediately after it gained independence in 1962. Even though there was just a few guns, transporting them from one country to another was very difficult. The biggest problem was getting them to Tanzania, where Samini's colleagues were now based. Sam had to come up with a plan. He sent a telegram to Peter Nanyemba, one of the Swapo representatives in Tanzania, and told him to organize a press conference at the airport. That meant that they could avoid going through customs and immigrations with concealed weapons. A press conference could be held in the VIP lounge. So Peter Nanyemba went to the Tanzanian Foreign Office and tried to convince them to allow it to take place there, but they said no. So Sam and his comrades had to go through customs and immigration after all. Just as they stepped inside the airport, a tall guard gave him a suspicious look and asked what was inside the bag he was carrying. Sam tried his best to look calm, but his heart was pounding hard against his chest. Just close for the refugees, sir, he said. The man looked at Sam again. Then, after a few seconds, he mocked the back, checked. Sam was safe, but his heart did not stop pounding until he was a safe distance from the airport. The War On the 4th of March, 1965, Swapo sent out its first combatants the G1 group, to fight against apartheid in Namibia. They were led by the commander, John Yaoto Nankudu, and they entered the country through Zambia. Using canoes to cross the river, they reached the town of Katima Mulilo. There, they shot the enemy soldiers at the camps inside Namibia and quickly returned to Zambia. On the 26th of August, 1966, the G2 Swapo combatants, who were also led by Otto Nankudu, prepared to attack more soldiers from the South African Defense Force. However, one of their trusted soldiers sneaked out of the training camp and reported the plan to the South African government. In order to preempt the attack, the SADF ambushed the combatants using eight helicopter gunships at Omuwulu Wombashe. The Swapo soldiers fought back, 
but they lost two of their brave warriors. This day became important in the history of Namibia and Sopo's liberation struggle. Today, it is celebrated as Heroes Day in Namibia. Two years later, Sopo members won part of their political battle when the UN agreed that Southwest Africa should be renamed Namibia, which officially took place in 1968. The Kasinga Massacre Meanwhile, Swapo continued their work both in Namibia and in exile. Two refugee camps were established in Angola and Zambia. More and more people from Namibia joined their fellow Namibians in Angola and Zambia because they wanted to escape apartheid. The camp in Angola was a place called Kasinga. Hundreds of Namibian refugees lived there, many with their families. On the 4th of May, 1978, while the Swapo leaders were away in New York for a meeting with the UN, apartheid troops attacked the Kasinga camp. The attack started at around 7 in the morning while everyone in the camp was at the morning assembly. First, a South African aircraft dropped poisonous gas on the camp. Everyone, children, fathers and mothers, ran in panic. Side of soldiers then began to shoot people from the air. When Sam and the other Swapo leaders arrived in Kasinga, they were heartbroken. Children had lost their parents, and parents had lost their children. A few babies were found in the bushes crying. About 1,000 people died or were wounded that day. The apartheid forces attacked. Not only people living in exile, but Namibians living in the country as well. They would often go to people's houses at random and accuse them of being Swapo members. Once, they even planted a bomb in a bank in Oshakati, killing more than 20 people. After the Kasinga attack, Sam didn't sleep for many nights. He stayed up until very late, trying to think of ways to improve the lives of his people, especially those who were living in the refugee camps. He and the other Swapo leaders wrote letters to anyone they thought might help. They traveled to different countries and met with many presidents. The Swapo combatants became known as the People's Liberation Army of Namibia. Plan Sam made sure that plan fighters were trained properly. He sent some of them to China, Russia, the Soviet Union, and Cuba to get military training. Sometimes Sam went to the military training camps himself to advise them on tactics and to encourage them to keep up the fight until Namibia was free. He communicated with many different countries about the needs of Namibians living in refugee camps. And as a result of his efforts, they received a great deal of support. Angola under the leadership of President Jose Eduardo da Santos, and Zambia, under the leadership of Kenneth Kaunda, the founding president of Zambia, gave Sopo a lot of support, including land to build refugee camps. In camps, basic education was given to young children. Older children were sent to attend high school in countries like Cameroon, Sierra Leone, Congo Brazzaville, Cuba, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Kenya, and Gambia. The German Democratic Republic and Czech Republic offered sponsorship to some of the children who had lost their parents while in exile. Other countries like Sweden, Finland, and Libya sent clothes and other goods for Namibian refugees. Growing their own food Many countries supported Swapo with food and clothing. But Namibian refugees also made their own contribution by growing their own crops, such as maize, watermelons, cabbage, lettuce, and potatoes. Young people were encouraged to work in gardens and also do regular physical exercise in the morning. 
Kitchens run by Namibians in the camps served everyone breakfast and dinner. A long struggle. All through the struggle, Sam continued to travel to the UN in New York to speak about bringing independence to Namibia. Even though it pained him greatly, Sam decided it was better to continue the military fight for freedom than surrender to oppression. In exile, the leaders of Sapa continued to command their combatants and make plans for independence. Sam went on traveling all over Africa and other parts of the world, wherever he could find people willing to listen. He made strong connections with important people everywhere. To make sure that internationally, Sopo was recognized as the true representative of Namibian people. Independence Over the decades, Sopo combatants continued to grow stronger, with improved training and weapons. Many years passed, but Sam never gave up working for the freedom of his beloved motherland. He continued to encourage his people whenever he met them, and always appealed to the international community for help. At last, the UN began to work with Swapo to bring about Namibian independence. Sadly, some Western countries who were friends of apartheid South Africa, such as Britain under Margaret Thatcher, delayed the process. After South Africa's military power was broken at the Battle of Quinto Quanevala in Angola, through a combination of the People's Armed Force of Liberation of Angola, the Cuban Internationalist Forces, and the Namibian's Liberation Army of Namibia, International support for Namibia's independence increased. As a result, the UN called for the implementation of the Resolution 435. This resolution made the apartheid government of South Africa withdraw from Namibia, stop its illegal administration of the country, and transfer power to the people of Namibia. Finally, the Namibian people who were living in exile in different countries came back home, and the people who resisted the apartheid government who remained in Namibia during the struggle of independence, could finally enjoy full freedom in their country. In 1989, for the first time, all Namibians, regardless of their color, class, or ethnic group, were allowed to vote for their own government. He was conferred the title of the founding president and the father of the Namibian nation. Finally, all Namibians were free, and a mood of celebration swept the country. Under President Sam Nyoma's leadership, the new government embraced reconciliation with the supporters of the apartheid system and continued to allow all Namibians to enjoy freedom in the country. The people were called upon to forgive but not forget. The new Namibian flag of blue, yellow, white, red and green was raised high on the 21st of March 1990 in a free and independent Namibia. The national flag is a symbol of the Namibian struggle for national unity. It symbolizes peace, unity and a common loyalty to Namibia. The sun symbolizes life and energy. The yellow represents warmth and the Namib desert. Blue stands for the Namibian sky, the Atlantic Ocean, the marine resources, and the importance of rain and water. Red signifies the blood of the Namibian people, their heroism, their determination to build a future of equal opportunity for all. White is for peace and unity. Green refers to Namibia's vegetation and agricultural resources. Honours Dr. Sam Nyomba is a true Namibian hero. He has been awarded many honours and awards for his outstanding leadership, courage and commitment to the independence of Namibia. Here are some awards he has been given. Lenin Peace Prize, 1973, USSR. Honorary Doctorate of Law, 1982, Nigeria. Ho Chi Minh Peace Award, 
1988, Vietnam. Namibia Freedom Award, California State University. 1988, California State University, USA. Honorary Citizenship of the City of Atlanta. 1988, USA. Honorary Doctorate Degree of Law. 1990, Lincoln University, USA. Indira Gandhi Peace Prize of Disarmament and Development. 1990, India. Anna VIII, The Vatican City. 1991, The Vatican City, Italy. Honorary Doctorate Degree of Education. Honorary Kauska. 1993, University of Namibia.